Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast and Project. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. This week, we're going to talk about a case, something a little bit different than what we usually do. This is our endocrine module, so we figured we'd talk about a DKA case. But there were a couple of wrinkles in this one that I thought were interesting. Now, to discuss the case with me, I'm going to bring on one of my chief residents, Lilia Bruken. Lily, welcome to Core EM. Hey, Swami. Thanks so much for having me. DKA is actually one of my favorite bread and butter EM topics. It's very satisfying to treat someone that comes in with multiple metabolic derangements and in some cases turn them around in the ED to the point of them no longer requiring an ICU admission. This case, however, was not your super straightforward DKA. Yes, this is a patient that we saw a couple weeks back. We got an EMS call saying that they were bringing in a combative, altered, 33-year-old gentleman who had a field finger stick that was greater than 700. EMS rolls in and the patient is clearly combative. He looks dry and just overall not well. Lily, walk me through the initial things that you wanted to do for this patient as soon as they hit the door. So IVO2 monitor to start, followed by a full set of vitals, including a rectal temp. Especially with our hot New York summer this year, it's pretty easy to overlook hyperthermia if you're anchored on that finger stick off the bat, plus a quick run through of the ABCs. Great. So this is the standard stuff that you always want to knock out in emergency medicine. You know, Mel Herbert kind of kids around about it, but I think he actually is onto something. If you do IVO2 monitor ABCs, you've pretty much done 90% of your treatment of most patients. So this guy had a blood pressure of 150 over 80, a SAT of 95%. His respiratory rate was about 34, and he looked to have sort of those small respirations. So we were pretty sure that we were looking at a DKA patient. Now, the interesting thing is when we hooked him up to the monitor, it was reading his heart rate at 250 beats per minute. Now, that obviously caught our attention right away, but when we looked at the monitor a little closer, it looked like the monitor was double counting the beats. It was counting both the QRS complexes and the T waves as QRS complexes, and the rate was probably closer to somewhere about 125 beats per minute, half of what the monitor was registering. The complexes were clearly wide, and as we got an EKG, it ended up with the QRS being about 130 milliseconds. So, Lily, when you hear that, rate of about 250 beats per minute, wide QRS, tall T waves, what are you thinking? So exactly what you mentioned, Swami, between these T's being so large and peaked enough that the monitor was reading them as QRS complexes, and then the QRS complex uh, of 130 on the EKG, we were really concerned about hyperkalemia. Yeah, and as we're doing all of this, we're really noting the patient's respirations. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how the respiratory rate is one of the forgotten or lost vital signs. It's so important. And you look at this guy breathing, and there are these deep, irregular breaths. And again, he's very tachypnic in the 30s. Now, just to make things more difficult, he was combative, and it was difficult to establish IV access on him to get him treated. Now, we eventually got in a line. So, Lily, how are you going to start treatment on this patient? So calcium salts are the first thing we need to give. Uh, this is important in order to stabilize the cardiac myocytes and narrow up that QRS so that the patient doesn't go into a sine wave and code. Peak Ts are usually the earliest sign of hyperkalemia, followed by lengthening of the PR with P wave flattening and widening of the QRS that follows that. However, it's really important to mention that in an individual patient, you may not see a stepwise progression through these changes, nor do serum potassium levels reliably correlate with these specific EKG changes. So going back to the case and calcium, you can either use calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, but the chloride version burns more and should be administered through a good large bore IV or a central line. If you're giving gluconate, however, you need to give three times as much gluconate as chloride. 
Yep, and we actually discussed the treatment of hyperkalemia back on podcast number seven, so check that one out for more details. Okay, so we decided to give him three grams of calcium gluconate because we didn't have a really nice large bore IV at that point, but we didn't see much change in the QRS complex with that, so we decided to double down. We gave him another three grams of calcium gluconate. We still didn't see an effect, and we doubled down again. We gave him another three grams. So this guy got a total of nine grams of calcium gluconate over about 20 minutes. After that ninth gram, his QRS finally started to narrow down to about 90 milliseconds. What else should we be doing during this time? So as far as the hyperkalemia goes, we also want to give some medicine to shift the potassium into the cells. So he got 10 units of insulin, a couple of amps of bicarb, and his fluids were running wide open. As far as the fluids, Lee, what kind of fluids do you want to be giving? What kind of crystalloid do you want to administer to this patient? So we gave LR. Uh, the patient looked very dry, and we know that with hyperglycemia, you get an osmotic diuresis that leaves the patient liters behind. We figured we'd be giving them five or six liters at least, and with that much NS, you're going to end up with a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. We hadn't checked the BBG at this point, but assumed he'd be acidemic, so we went with LR, which is a much more physiologic solution than NS. Yeah, I don't think it matters if you give a liter or two of normal saline when you're starting, but if you give that much, if you're going to give five, six, seven liters, I think it does make a difference. Well, at some point during the pushes of calcium gluconate, we did get that VBG back. The pH was 6.91, the bicarb was less than five, a lactate of 13, a PCO2 of 26, and an anion gap of about 43. I think this pretty much confirmed the diagnosis of DKA in case we weren't sure. And clearly the patient is really sick, especially with that pH and that low bicarb. Lily, at this point, we're still having trouble controlling the patient's agitation. Given how sick he is and his work of breathing, why don't we just go ahead and intubate him? Looking at this VBG, the patient has a severe metabolic acidosis and a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. He's hyperventilating, blowing off the CO2 to try and keep that pH up. The dangers of intubating patients like this is that you hypoventilate him, he'll retain CO2, and drop his pH. Weingart talked about this on MCRIT in the past, the idea of the hop killers, hypotension, hypoxia, and pH. Ruben Strayer also discussed this back on podcast four. His idea is the physiologically challenging airway due to significant acidosis. Regardless of how you frame it, intubating this patient is going to be highly dangerous. Not to say you can't intubate and mechanically ventilate a patient with metabolic acidosis and a compensatory respiratory alkalosis, but the keys are to have the shortest possible apneic time, and it's to mimic their respiratory physiology before you intubated them. If they were pulling 30 breaths per minute, give them 30 breaths a minute. You've got to keep them hyperventilated so the pH doesn't tank. Given all of these considerations, we elected not to intubate him, but decided to give him some midazolam for the agitation. Even that could have been dangerous as it can cause respiratory depression, but we decided we needed to get some sedation in place in order to manage him. Yeah, in retrospect, we probably could have used ketamine, which would have preserved his respiratory drive, but the midazolam actually worked quite well. He was sedated, but his respiratory rate actually didn't budge past that 30-35 that he was taking. All right, so we've treated the hyperkalemia with tons of calcium, we've given him fluids, and we've finally gotten the patient sedated. What now? Well, we've only partially addressed the DKA itself. Fluids are the first step, but we also need to give him insulin. So we started him on an insulin drip at 0.1 units per kg per hour, no bolus. Yeah, typically I don't bother with a bolus before giving an infusion of insulin, but this patient actually did get a bolus, but it was for his hyperkalemia. We just didn't give an additional bolus on top of that one. 
In most patients, the bolus isn't necessary, and it causes potassium shifts, which can be dangerous in the normal or hypokalemic patient, and increases the risk of hypoglycemic episodes. All right, what else are we going to do for the patient? So as in any patient with an acute exacerbation of a chronic condition, we need to look at for the inciting incident. Why did this guy go into DKA? The most common culprits are infection and medication noncompliance. The backstory for this patient was that he hadn't taken his insulin in days, but we decided to give cultures and cover him with antibiotics anyway. Yeah, infection is so common in patients lapsing into DKA that I'm very liberal about covering them broadly. It's just hard to know that sepsis isn't at play. Okay, so insulin drip is hanging, IV antibiotics are given. What else do we need to look out for? So interestingly enough, hypokalemia is a real problem. All patients with DKA have that osmotic diuresis we mentioned, and along with the fluids and glucose they lose in the urine, they also lose electrolytes, especially potassium. Patients with DKA are hundreds of milliequivalents of potassium total body depleted. The hyperkalemia this patient presented with is primarily due to the acidosis and the hydrogen-potassium exchange that occurs to try and offset the acidemia. As the acidemia resolves and the potassium begins to move intracellularly, the patient will drop their potassium. Absolutely. So check the potassium frequently. And once it drops below somewhere around four and a half to four milliequivalents, start supplementing. Along with that potassium, don't forget to give them magnesium, which is necessary to move the potassium from the serum into the cells. Now let's go back to that altered mental status the patient presented with. Do you think we need to LP this patient? Well, it depends on what you're thinking about for the underlying inciting event that precipitated the DKA. If you suspect meningitis or encephalitis, I think you do. But before that LP, it might be useful to get a non-con head CT. Patients with DKA can develop cerebral edema. This is a rare complication that is typically seen in younger patients and frequently in your first presentation of DKA. It's characterized by altered mental status, headache, vomiting, and is life-threatening. It's unclear why some patients get it and others don't, but if you find it, you have to act quickly. I've only seen this once, and it was in a teenager with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes who presented with DKA. The patient was initially improving with our treatment and then suddenly started complaining of a headache and vomited. We ran him over to non-con head CT, and we found cerebral edema. So, Lily, once we identify the cerebral edema, how do we actually treat it? Two main options here, Swami. We can give mannitol 1.5 grams per kilo, or you can give hypertonic saline. These patients are in a lot of trouble, and either of these treatments are only temporizing measures while you continue to treat them. All right, well, that takes us to the end of this case. Our patient didn't have cerebral edema when he went on up to the ICU, and he actually did quite well. He closed his gap over the next 48 hours and was sent to the floor on day number three. Let's recap the big take-home points here. One, some patients with DKA will present with severe hyperkalemia. So you want to administer calcium salt and don't be shy about redosing until you see that QRS narrow. Two, beware of intubating patients with severe metabolic acidosis. If they have prolonged apnea times or are hypoventilated, the pH and the patient will crash. Keep a close eye on electrolytes and DKA, particularly potassium. They are total body down and you'll need to replete them aggressively in order to avoid severe hypokalemia, even if they come in hyperkalemic like our patient did. And finally, if your DKA patient is improving and then has a change in mental status, strongly consider that they've developed cerebral edema. This is most common in young patients and those with their first DKA episode. Excellent, Lily. Thanks for sharing this case with the Core EM listeners. Thanks so much, Swami, and thanks everyone for listening. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of core content that's available free. 
Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore yeah. Thanks, and see you all next week.